0: Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile of the podcast. This is episode sixty-six called Andrea. On today's episode, I'm proud to partner with NYU Langone Fertility Center, which performs over three thousand fertility treatment cycles per year at their two convenient locations in Manhattan, New York, with more than fifteen thousand babies and counting. NYU Langone Fertility Center has been a world leader in providing compassionate and efficient fertility treatment since 1992. You guys, I'm not going to lie. That's the year I graduated from high school because I'm old. But anyway, NYU is amazing. And if you want some more information, you can call them at 212 263 eight nine nine oh or you can visit their website which is fertilityny dot org to get started. Again it's NYU Langone Fertility Center 212 263 8990 or visit their website at fertilityny dot org. Thanks NYU. So before we get started I just wanted to point out in case you guys don't know Fertility Rally is live and this is the new business babe from me and Blair from Fab Fertility. We've both, you know, experienced infertility struggles of our own. And we launched this on June 1st. And it's a community and a content hub for women and men who are navigating all of this stuff that we talk about on this website. So I won't drone on about it, but I'm super excited about it. We have lots of different levels of membership. We've got three-month six month and 12 month giftable memberships. If you know somebody who's going through this and you want to do something for them to support them, but you're not sure what to do, it kind of makes the perfect gift. We basically want people to know that they are not alone. And we really have strived to make this the go-to place for support and education and also entertainment because we feel like just because it's infertility doesn't mean it can't be entertaining. So check it out. DM me if you have any questions, it's at fertilityrally.com. Thanks. Love ya. Okay. So now I want to tell you guys about Andrea Surtash, who is a New York based dating and relationship writer. She's an online broadcaster and an author. And she's also the creator of Pregnantish, the media site that helps people navigate the challenges of infertility and fertility treatments. So it's kind of an online magazine and something she started a handful of years ago. So today, Andrea is going to tell me all about the eight years and 18 fertility treatments she went through before having her baby daughter, which includes getting ghosted by two different surrogates before her cousin offered to carry her embryo. So there's a lot more to it than that, but I'm going to let you listen to Andrea say it in her own words. So without further ado, this is Andrea's infertility story. I'd love to just start at the beginning with you. And I always love to ask, You know, growing up, did you always know that you wanted to be a mom and have kids?
1: I did not always know I wanted to have kids. In fact, I didn't know if I wanted to be married. There was many years people called me jokingly, even exes called me runaway bride. So I wasn't the kid playing with little Barbie dolls, uh, families and babies and but I definitely felt that way soon after I met and married my husband.
0: Okay. So what changed with him? Like what was the difference? So my husband's a
1: public school teacher and he was born to be a dad. I mean, when I, when I saw him and still see him with kids, he's so incredible. He's so funny and so silly and so wise. And I just, thought of, you know, like what, how cool it would be to raise a child with him. It would be a different experience than I think I imagined when I thought of kids years before. And I really just, you know, I think for me, he was the missing piece because I wanted to co-parent with him.
0: hmm I love that. That's so great yeah it was you know it's, it's,
1: it became a burning desire. I think this mm-hmm. is very really common with with infertility when we first got married and started trying, not trying, not really mm-hmm. you know not really tracking ovulation and not really trying too much. I could take it or leave it. I, I thought I wanted kids, but I wasn't that keen uh, as I became a year or two in when it wasn't happening, and then it really crystallized for me, and mm-hmm. I thought. Uh, this is real something I really, really want, and um so so that that certainly contributed to my desire. yeah and it could have been my age because we started trying in my early thirties like i we got married when I was thirty or thirty one and we started trying soon after that uh-huh. and I just uh you know I felt different probably at twenty one than I did at thirty one about being
0: a mom exactly well, talk me through if you don't mind those you know the first couple of years like what What was going on? You said trying, not trying, which I love, but were you, when did you get to a point when you had been trying and you realized that there might be some sort of issue?
1: Well, I knew from a young age that I may face some infertility. And this is a probably unique part of the story because I've interviewed so many people, you know, through Pregnanish who didn't know that they had infertility. But when I started menstruating around 14 years old, a doctor told me I likely had endometriosis. I had Mm -hmm. never heard of that. Just due to my painful periods, they were very long. I was out of school. And I was put on the birth control pill. And I remember him saying, I may have issues later Mm -hmm. and to check out my fertility Later. So when I married Michael, my husband, I told him it may take us a year or two to get pregnant. I knew I may have some issues. I never imagined the epic <laughs> journey we encountered, but yeah, I definitely knew we may have an issue. And I think I should have, you know, in, in retrospect, it's interesting that I didn't think to do testing with an RE or even an OBGYN in those years. Mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, we'll be patient and it'll, it'll happen.
0: Right. So, what kind of in endometriosis did you have? Like, was it super painful? Or there's so many different kinds that people go uh, through.
1: It was. I mean, when I was a teenager, it was debilitating to the point that I'd miss school for days on end. I would be in the hospital. Whoa. Uh, I would bleed. You know, this is a graphic, but it's a show. We could talk about this. Yeah. For sometimes ten days, and it would be so painful. And when we went to actually check out my tubes and ovaries, we learned I had fibroid tumors covering my tubes and ovaries, which is a common thing that goes with endometriosis. So not only did I still likely have endo, but I also had fibroid tumors, mm-hmm. which were preventing me from getting pregnant because uh, again, the tumors were covering my tubes and ovaries.
0: Right. And so what did they do when they discovered that? Did you have surgery?
1: I did. So. I had surgery in 2012 to uh, open stomach surgery which was a major surgery. I was in the hospital for days because it was so massive my my fibroid that they had to go in, you know, open the stomach. So when I when I finished that surgery after a couple months I thought now we'll get pregnant because now, you know, the problem is gone. Right. It,
0: problem uh, solved. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they found a little endo when they opened me as well, so it was still there. Not probably as bad as when I was a teenager, but still there. And so I knew, you know, we we had some issues, but that the big thing was gone.
0: How was the recovery and everything from the surgery? It sounds so intense.
1: It was intense, but you know, I was so hopeful after that. It was, you know, we were trying. I don't know for maybe two years at that point. Mm-hmm. So. As painful as it was, I was hopeful. I was so happy we found the cause of not getting pregnant that I knew we were on a better path after that
0: surgery, or, or so I thought. Okay. Um, so then, what happened?
1: <laughs> well, the you know, I always joke. How long do you have? We've so got I, all the time in the world. It's such a long. I no infertility story is a straight line. We know that um, mine was certainly not a straight line, but. I went back to a reproductive endocrinologist in the next year, or you know, at the end of that year, I can't even remember, honestly. I lose track of time. But I went back and we started the IUI process. And the first time I got pregnant off of IUI was in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I think it was August of 2013 or September. And I was like, okay, well, that took a while after my surgery, but now it, you know, I'm pregnant, so that's fine.
0: <laughs> that was yeah. not
1: um, so done. Done. Yay! All we needed was IUI. I'm so right. IVF. Now I don't want to give away. Spoiler alert! It took me eight years and 18 fertility treatments, and I now have a 16 month old baby.
0: Yeah. Wow. So
1: th- this can be a four hour podcast. I don't think anyone listening wants to hear all of that. But the point <laughs> is every every step. I thought, this is it. And I think that's a very common feeling for anyone on this journey, just believe, oh, it didn't work last time because of blank. And now I'm trying this and it'll work.
0: Right. Can you give the overview? You know, you obviously don't have to go through each 18, but of what you tried after the IUI and et cetera. Sure.
1: Yeah. So like a lot of people, our insurance, my husband's a teacher. We had really good insurance in New York and we went through the maximum num. You, you could have like unlimited IUIs, I think, on mm-hmm. the um, insurance. So so I did that. I had about eight or nine IUIs. And because I got pregnant on, I think it was my third IUI, uh-huh. I felt like IUI does work, you know? So I'll just try again. And, right. you know, we'll, we'll do that. It's cheaper. It's less invasive. We moved on to IVF in 2014.
0: Mm -hmm. So you never um, got pregnant again on an IUI? No,
1: no. And I had completed, I think at the point that I did IVF, I had completed about six IUIs.
0: Wow.
1: We still did more after that between IVF cycles. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I did my first IVF in 2014, and then I got pregnant with IVF on my second... IVF, I think, or third. I Again, I've lost count. I know. Isn't it
0: funny know. how you do lose track of all the details? I'm always like, how many eggs were on my retrieval? 19, 29,
1: 16? It's like impossible because it just days turn into weeks and months and years. And then yeah. you wake up and you think like, how did I keep going? Exactly. But I did. I did. And part of it for a lot of people going through it, I think is when one thing works, You feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna try again because it it worked. And I was told by doctors all the time that my embryos look quote unquote beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I felt like we weren't genetically testing them at that point, and I'll I'll share that detail after, but I felt really good about that. So in 2015, I did another IVF procedure, and this time I did it in Toronto, where I'm originally from, Mm -hmm. just to like mix it up, I guess. And The doctor said these are really beautiful embryos, and I want to do a frozen embryo transfer because maybe your body needs a break. You keep doing fresh IVF cycles, and sometimes it's good to take a few months off. And during, I have to tell you, Ali, like during that time in 2015 when we transferred the beautiful embryo, Mm -hmm. I did everything to make it stick and mm-hmm. every old wives tale I mean I ate pineapple cores yep. I read message boards I I did I took a train back from Toronto to New York which was like 10 hours just because I didn't want to go on an airplane because both times I had lost a pregnancy I'd just flown and I was convinced it was my fault oh. so which I now know is is not true but right. at the time but was, yeah was crazy
0: that happens um, i'm right there with happens. you i did all that yeah and you do and we
1: do we think we can control the uncontrollable and mm-hmm. so i i took this train back i was really hopeful and i'll never forget it was around my birthday and it was december 2015 and i thought Ugh, these 5 years this this is what it was for mm-hmm. i needed i needed to give my body a break and mm-hmm. do this right And when that failed, I hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. I just did not know what to do next. And that's when the doctor said to me, I remember we had a call in January, 2016. And he said, I don't want you to transfer any other embryos without genetically testing them. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know at this point if it's your body or your your egg and sperm, but my sense is it's your body. Because he Mm -hmm. had known i had endo, I had fibroid tumors, i had had all these issues in my uterus. And his... His suspicion was that my body was rejecting embryos. Right. So in February 2016, he said, "Do another one or two IVF cycles, you know, retrievals." And we did that over a few months, and then send them away for a PGS, now called PGTa testing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you have anything healthy, call me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, we we did, and we had healthy embryos, and. Um, I don't even remember how many embryos we tested because we did a bunch of retrievals just to get enough embryos to send away. And um, I believe in 20, end of 2016, early 2017, he looked over everything and he said, okay, I think you need a gestational carrier, which is a surrogate. Right. Who carries your embryo but has no genetic link? So it's my genetic material, mm-hmm. my egg, my husband's sperm, put inside a healthy uterus. Mm-hmm. He said, I think that's going to be your best bet at meeting your baby. Okay. And so- I thought, easy. Okay, now I'll just get a surrogate.
0: Was it that easy for you? Like, no. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the emotional <laughs> side of this. Like, when you said you hit rock bottom, backing up a little bit, I'd love to yeah. hear what that looked like for you. And then jumping yeah. to the gestational carrier, when they said that, how did you process that?
1: Well, it was actually good news when I was told that that would be my best option because I felt like I had run out of options. I mean, I was in year five or six when he told me this, and I was exhausted from mm-hmm. this marathon. And I, you know, when I hit rock bottom, what did it look like? It looked like not getting out of bed, it looked like my husband not getting out of bed and feeling hopeless. But something amazing happened in 2016 while we were in this position. This is when I started thinking about launching Pregnanish, mm-hmm. which is a company I started to help people navigate this process. I uh, It was originally a book, so I'm an uh, author. I've been an author for years. Mm-hmm. Penguin Random House is my publisher, and every year my agent would say, what's your new book? And at first, Pregnanish was a book, but every time I had a failure Or, you know, I just didn't want to write about it. I needed to mourn and grieve. And in 2016, I said to a friend, you know, I think it's bigger than me. I don't think it's a book. I think it's something bigger. So at the same time that I was hitting rock bottom and not knowing what I do next, I was looking into launching this platform. And that gave me a lot of hope and fuel because I knew it wasn't just about me and my, my journey and I could help others. And I think that's always a very powerful and you know this as well, like it's just a very powerful place to be when you're feeling hopeless to channel that, to connect with others and try to help others. So one absolutely. thing I learned, you know, absolutely. And, and one thing I learned when I started researching was all the paths to parenthood that were possible. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time you hit your five or six of trying and treatments, you know that it's not a straight line. There's a lot of ish. That's why it's called a lot yep. of pregnant ish. And, and that it doesn't, if you want to be a parent, you will be. It just may not look like how you originally imagined. So when the doctor told me about gestational surrogacy, it was a relief kind of. It was like, oh, uh, there's this option I've never considered. I don't know much about it, but it sounds like he, he said some crazy statistic. Like I remember him saying with a genetically tested embryo and a healthy uterus, I believe you have an eighty to ninety percent chance of meeting your baby, mm-hmm. and, I, and when you're a fertility patient, you've never heard a statistic like that. I mean, right. IVF on a good day has like a twenty five percent chance of working right. or something. IUI has like a fifteen percent chance of working. So that's that to me. That was like uh, incredible. Right. And. So quote unquote, just getting a surrogate felt like a great next step. And I, I had to mourn the idea of not carrying for sure. I, I don't want to gloss over how hard that was for right. me because I'd always imagined carrying a pregnancy and connecting to my baby that way. Mm-hmm. But
0: how did you finally get to the point where you made the decision to do it? Because like you said, I know it's a lot of women wrestle with that and you know, it's, it's a hard decision to make, I would, I would imagine.
1: It was, it, I just didn't want to keep going through, you know, in year six and after 18 treatments or whatever it had been, I didn't want to keep putting my body through more loss and failure. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, as much as I grieved letting go of not carrying, it was a relief to mm-hmm. not carry. I would have been so stressed carrying a pregnancy. I had so much trauma, like emotional trauma and even yeah. physical trauma in my body, thousands and thousands and years and years of shots. Like I just didn't want to do it anymore. Right. So I, I, I have to say, like as, as sad as I was to not carry, I was very relieved. And mm-hmm. I just thought, okay, great. I'm going to get a surrogate. And not knowing in 2016 or 17 that it was illegal to, to get one in New York where I lived, right. not knowing how hard it was to match with one, not understanding how many steps and how much money and how much pain that process would take. I mean, the short version is that we matched with two surrogates who dropped out on us. One dropped out on us weeks before the transfer after five months of working with her, of medical mm-hmm. and legal and psychological workup. And this happens in adoption cases as well. Right? You know, you get so close to the, the person you're working with and I felt like hopeful, this this is it. And she told me after the first surrogate dropped down on me, she said, I'm not going anywhere. I know the pain you've been through. And then she left me at the altar. Wow. Um, and that happens. And what I happened was,
0: ultimately? Like, did they just we Well, never know.
1: I never heard from her again. I literally don't know what happened. Wow. The agency I worked with told me, and we stopped working with them for good reason because they matched me with two who dropped down on me, told me that she had come across... Financial hardship. I mean, we were paying in Canada where we were working at the time with a gestational carrier. You can't be paid to carry, but but you get all your bills covered, all Mm -hmm. your, you know, daycare and house cleaning and anything else. So I I thought that was the fault of the agency for for you know matching me with someone who wasn't that stable. Truly, but we don't know what happened. I never heard from her again for months. I was in touch with her, sending. Flowers, gifts for her daughter. We were in touch and then she ghosted me. And I am a relationship writer. So I knew in December, she, you know, that the arrangement ended in January when we were supposed to do the transfer of 2018. Mm-hmm. But I knew it was going to go down because she just stopped responding to my texts and my messages, yeah. and, or days would go by and it was just like a breakup. And I, I knew. And, uh, do you have that January, same grief
0: that you feel after a breakup too? Like you do. You and I
1: think it's worse. I, I do. Yeah. I think what, you know, my friend Candace, who's Our Misconception, that's her, her blog, mm-hmm. she, she talked me through because she's also worked with surrogates and she said the pain of losing a surrogate is hard to explain because it's one thing, you know, I always say it's one thing when your body fails or science or it's it's a physical failure, mm-hmm. but when it's human, like when someone who you trust betrays your trust, it's yeah, it's it's very hard to come back from that. That's so sweet. that was in January 2018. That was another very low point. Now we're wow. in year whatever. And um I, I didn't know our next step. We had l- r- lost over ten thousand dollars. In the workup with her. Mm-hmm. And my husband's a teacher, I'm a writer. We didn't have like endless cash flow. Right. And insurance doesn't cover it. And uh, we didn't know what we would do. And then I got a message from my cousin in January 2018 that she wanted to help.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And that changed my life.
0: In terms of being the carrier?
1: Yes. She, her husband uh, said, happy new year. How are you doing? <laughs> I said, you want the honest answer? Yeah. Not too well.
0: Not how much time well. do you have?
1: <laughs> yeah, how much time do you have? And he basically, you know, I, I told him the truth of what happened. And because Alana, my cousin and I are close, she, she had known we were working with this carrier in Canada. She had heard about her. Mm. So she couldn't believe what she heard. And she just texted me one night. Have you ever thought, of a family member to help carry your embryo. Mm. And I was shaking. Like, I can't even tell you how much I was shaking when I read the message. And Mm -hmm. I ran into the bedroom and I sobbing told my husband, I think Alana's offering to carry our embryo. And he was like, no, no, I I don't believe it. And I, and it just, um, that's who delivered my baby who's 16 months. Oh my
0: God. Gosh. So she's
1: also four years old because the embryo was created in 2016. Right. But, but it took us that long to find a carrier, and my cousin was
0: my angel. Absolutely. So we were going through IVF at the same time in 2015. I wish I had known oh, you wow. back then. We could, like we, we could have like texted each other. I
1: fived in the waiting room. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, I have exactly. a couple questions, just backtracking a little bit. So, yeah. pregnant ish, which I definitely want to talk about because it is such a great. Resource. I mean, you were like one of the first, you know, online magazines, mm-hmm. basically dedicated to helping people with infertility and fertility and navigate this, all these murky, shitty waters, if I do yeah. say so. So it's been such a great thing, but I, I'm intrigued that you were able to do it while you were going through this, because for me... I wasn't able to start my podcast until after I'd had my son and I was kind of like on the other side of it, you know, with for lack of a better yeah. term. I'm just curious to hear how you were able to like be in the thick of it while still helping others and like writing about it and stuff.
1: Well, I mean, I think that I didn't know that I could do it, honestly, mm-hmm. but I felt so compelled to do it because I've been a content creator as as you have, For years, Mm -hmm. and a journalist and an on air personality helping Mm -hmm. people navigate relationships. And I felt like the market was really missing the the site that I hope I created, Mm -hmm. which was a curated, you know, curated, high quality, premium content written by professional journalists. Edited by a professional editor, filmed by a professional. I mean my videographers have won Emmys. I, mm-hmm. I take content so seriously at Pregnantish. And I felt like that was missing in the category. When and I know you know from going through that this back then, like there were blogs and blogs are great, but they're often first person. There were medical sites, which are helpful, but for the medical stuff and then where did I find infertility content at the time? It was on parenting sites, which mm. is like the worst most triggering place to go right. when you're when you're going through infertility like i don 't want to go to a parenting site and get to my sad section about infertility right so I was compelled to start this because I was yearning for something like this and and also. I think I needed to get out of my own head and my own experience and connect with the larger community, and maybe this was one way to do that. I knew I could make it, hopefully, a difference because I was a media personality out there all the time in media, sharing advice. I felt like I want to use that platform that I have and help others and connect others. Mm-hmm. And I, it started. You know, it's interesting because we we launched by accident when we launched, because in January, 2017, again, in the thick of things, like I announced this, I didn't even know if I had healthy embryos at this time. Mm -hmm. So in January, 2017, I did a Facebook post just to my friends Mm -hmm. that said, you know, you, you, you guys have seen me on television and you see me on book tours. And one thing you maybe don't know is behind the scenes, I've been struggling for, you know, years trying to, has to have a baby. And um I'm not sharing this because I want your sympathy and I'm not sharing this to just share it. I'm sharing this because I know some of you reading are going through this or you have close you know, connections and loved ones going through this. And I'm launching this site called Pregnantish, and I explained what it was. Mm-hmm. And I said, so for anyone reading who's trying to build your modern family this way, you're not, not only not alone, but here we've created this site with these amazing articles. I mean, I had... Three New York Times best-selling authors launched the site with me with their mm-hmm. writing. Like it was really, I thought, good content. So I post this, and it got so much engagement. And and the last line was, "So don't judge a Facebook by its cover," because I yeah. said, "So you've all seen me." So so great. So I press post, and I'm shaking and crying, and my husband's holding my hand, like I've come out, right? As right. a I've come out. Like I've been in the media. I've I've been on like the Oprah Network talking about sex, and here I am, the totally. least sexiest thing in the world. I'm infertile, everyone. Mm-hmm. And it got it got so much engagement. And one of my friends said, please make this public. Like, it's really important to make this public. And I was going to launch during National Infertility Awareness Week in April of that year. And This mm-hmm. was January. And I made it public. And it got shared so many times that ABC News called me, Bravo called me, the Toronto Star called me. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I woke up to so... New York Magazine called me. Like, so I woke great. up to so many media requests. Yeah. Because it was kind of unique, and thank you for saying that. But it, at that time, it really was no
0: for real. And, you are definitely one of the pioneers in the content space, for sure. Thank you. I mean, and and you know, good content, and you produce good
1: content. So it was, it was, yeah, it was just really important to come out with that. And you know, we launched like when I wasn't ready. <laughs> So, right. I,
0: but are I, you I, ever really ready?
1: Yeah, no. But I mean I didn't have all the art artwork up, yeah. all the articles finished. I had enough articles, I had enough content that someone could read it before bed and feel like we were a real site. But since then we've published over 50 writers. You know, we've worked with industry leaders across the country. We have great healthcare provider partners, mm-hmm. but also incredible audience who contribute such beautiful storytelling. I mean I cry constantly. I got a submission today. We don't publish everything that's submitted. We're, you know, we have a submission process. Right. But I I cried reading today's submission from someone who went through menopause in her 20s and mm-hmm. I just um constantly in awe of this community. So yeah. it helped me. Like it helped me then and it helps
0: me still. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And you're such a great advocate too, which is where I first finally got to meet you. I'd been reading pregnant once I got into this space too and mm-hmm. had admired what you'd been doing and you're being so outspoken. And then finally I got to meet you in person in Albany. Yeah. Um, I think I probably like fangirled out and was like, hi.
1: It um, <laughs> <That> was <laughs> like, so good to meet you. Yeah. We were both uh, advocating for surrogacy. Yes. Legal in New York. Yeah. Right.
0: So I just wanted to give props that like you've been such a vocal advocate and for this community and and doing so much for, for everybody in it. So that's so great, but let's, yeah, let's talk about that before we wrap up. So you obviously went with your cousin as a surrogate, but she was not, In she was in Toronto, right? Or in Canada?
1: No, so this is the weirdest part. Okay, my cousin and I were both born in Toronto. She lives in New Jersey, I live in New York. So that's another, there were so many weird layers to our story Mm -hmm. that I can't go into right now, but it's in it's on people com, if you ever want to see the, yeah. the extended story of our family. Yeah, Because yeah. when she offered to help, she said, "I want to try to help rebuild our family because so much of our, my father and her father lost so much family in the Holocaust, oh, and wow. my dad was born in hiding, and she just felt like that we could honor our grandmother who my grandmother lost two baby boys, like she she went through wow. hell with baby trauma." And my cousin just uh, felt like this could be, a, she could take our, my embryo, carry it. She had had good pregnancies before. And she just felt like, let, let me try to help. Like, this would be a real great thing for our family's story. Oh, it's also. So
0: beautiful. Yeah. And what, so. tell me a little bit about the experience, like with her. Was it, <laughs> how, were you it, going to the appointments and like, how involved mm-hmm. were you with all that stuff?
1: Well, I, I think it's really important in any surrogacy arrangement and gestational surrogacy arrangement is different than traditional
0: surrogacy, but
1: both involve someone, you know, giving you the greatest gift of life ever.
0: And Wait, sorry, think, Andrea. Do you mind just explaining yeah. for people that might not know? I know you already said what gestational means, sure. but what is traditional? Well,
1: traditional isn't practiced as much today, but it, mm-hmm. at all, but some places in the world it is. It's where the surrogate's using her own egg. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different process, you know, when she delivers because it's her genetic baby. Right. Whereas gestational surrogacy means the carrier has no genetic link to the baby. Right. Sometimes someone uses an egg donor with a gestational surrogate and like their husband's sperm or a same-sex couple might use their sperm, you know, and an egg donor. But that's the difference. But I think in any surrogacy arrangement, I think you need to, you go through a lot of legal paperwork and negotiation, and that's an important step because you, you want to figure out how much you should be in touch you know, some people, when someone's carrying their embryo, like want to check in every minute, what are you eating? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like your, your most prized thing ever. So I had a very frank conversation. My, my cousin's very emotionally mature and I was able to say to her, like, what, what works for you? Because I'll do as much or as little as you need. Right. And she just said, you know, come to major appointments. You don't have to come to all, but like major appointments would be good. And, um, like, yeah, just, you know, you don't have to check in too much, but I'll, I'll just update you obviously if anything important. So I, I don't, I trusted her so mm-hmm. much that I didn't need to keep a food journal or figure out what she was doing. I just right. knew, knew who she was and is. So that was re- really helpful in that way. It was both a relief and at times hard because when you're not physically showing a pregnancy, look, I had, tried for almost a decade at that point mm-hmm. there were no markers of me you know it didn't seem like i was having a baby mm-hmm. finally <laughs> and and a friend said to me why aren't you having a shower and i said well because i'm not pregnant and i don't I, would my cousin have it and she mm-hmm. said no it's you're having the baby my cousin didn't want to come to the shower i i understood why like it was she felt like you know i'm doing this as a I'm doing this to help you, but it's not my baby. And Mm -hmm. I just don't think I should be part of the shower. And some surrogates feel differently about that. But my friends, you know, a week before we were due to deliver, my friends took me out for brunch and toasted Mm-hmm. And said, "You are having this baby." Yeah, uh, but you know, you you get like I missed out on certain chapters while while they were unfolding. But I was I was so excited every time I heard the heartbeat. And Alana was so sensitive when a doctor or a technician would say your baby's heartbeat, she would say, "No, uh, 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 it's Andrea's baby's heartbeat." Aww. Like she would just constantly correct people to direct them to me, who was yeah. who was the mother. So she she handled it with the utmost grace and care.
0: I'd love to wrap up with when your gorgeous baby girl was born. Tell me about that.
1: Well, it was at the end of December, 2018. Mm-hmm. And I, it was the most surreal, literally out-of-body experience because it wasn't in my body <laughs> that I've ever had. Um, I, I was, you know, I felt in a way it probably feels like how a husband feels when his wife is delivering because I was right next to her watching the head come out. Mm-hmm. And shaking. I have a video of a minute after I met her, and I'm happy to share that. I oh, that would be awesome. Just, um, it was greatest day of my life, and I just i I was I I couldn't believe it, and I still can't believe it. I mean, it's been 16 months, and the greatest gift of of infertility is I still look at her like in complete awe. I mean, during COVID quarantine. It's not easy to be homebound so much with a toddler without daycare. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But but infertility gave me this gift of just pinching myself like nonstop. That doesn't mean we can't complain. Those of us who have infertility, I always want to qualify that and right. clarify that. But like it truly was miraculous. And I just, it, it, my story couldn't have unfolded better. So when I launched Pregnant Ash, I didn't know how my story would end. And then it, it became almost this Hollywood ending with uh, my cousin, my, a lot of media has covered it now because it was mm-hmm. so kind of bigger than just me and my cousin. It was mm-hmm. my family's legacy. So it was j- just, it, and I never want to say a tragedy makes sense because I used to hate that when I was in the thick of infertility. This will make sense one day. I wanted to like punch someone, right. but truly it couldn't have unfolded better. And I, I'm, yeah, I, I have this amazing daughter and she will always know her story when she's old enough to hear about my cousin. She mm-hmm. will, and it, and it will be a source of pride that so many people created her. <laughs>
0: so, yes, I love I, that.
1: I, I, I love it. I, it's, it makes me so proud.
0: Okay, guys isn't that the greatest story? I love how her family came together to support her and how her cousin came through as her surrogate. So Andrea, thanks again for sharing that story. Thank you guys for listening. I hope everyone is doing well and I will talk to you guys next time.